we doing this morning? Thankful to be in the house of the Lord. Are we all awake and happy this morning? Amen. Good morning to all of you who are joining us later today. We welcome you. And as always, we pray that you will feel the presence of the Lord that you are feeling here. And that your needs will be met in his presence. Amen. I want to read from Psalm 16 this morning. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied and hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my God. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in the pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Do you have a good inheritance this morning? Yeah. Praise God. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in you will not leave my soul in shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I am thankful. I am thankful that he is my inheritance. He is my hope, my joy, my everything. We were talking this morning about the static going on spiritually. There's just been a lot of static and a lot of, not confusion, but distraction. And I woke up, I was telling the team, I woke up this morning at about 4.30 praying, God, I come against, I know it's the enemy, I know it's his plan, but whatever is working that's causing all of this, that's distracting me, that's plaguing my mind, and I can't quite put my I come against him in the name of Jesus. Amen. We can do that because when you speak his name, you've said it all. Whether it's a sign and a toll, I've said it many times, I know, but throughout my life, sometimes the only thing I was able to do was whisper his name and just say, Jesus, I need you. And there he came. Amen. Surrounding me, I could feel his presence. And at other times, I have yelled his name, Jesus.
Thank you. 
Let him wrap you in his arms. 
today, and uh, God is doing something special in our midst, and uh, I'm glad to know who he is, and we want to uh, welcome all of our guests here today, we're thankful that you decided to spend some time with us this morning, and our prayer is that you would sense his presence in a very special way. And uh, we tend to get a little emotional around here for good reason. You don't know all of our stories of where God has brought us from to where we are today. And uh, I learned a long time ago not to question one's worship. And uh, there was a, I, I said this before, but there was a gentleman in our church in Delaware when we were attending service. He stood right over to the right, kind of where Travis is at. And from the beginning of the worship time to the very end, he spun like a top. I don't know how he didn't fall over. <clears throat> but I mean, he just spun 100 miles an hour. And uh, some people had the audacity to talk to the pastor about it a little bit and said he was a little bit out of line. And so the pastor took care of it and uh, looked at the people and said, listen, don't you question his worship. You don't know what he's been through. To have the freedom to do what he was doing. You don't know what God has brought each person from, or through, or out of. And so I never question somebody's worship. Some people in this church have been in countries and are from countries that couldn't worship freely. And now they're in a country that they can. There's others that have been held in bondage to addictions. There's others that have been abused. There's others that have been lost and wandering. We don't know where everybody's coming from. And you don't know where I've been, and you don't, and I don't know where you've been. All I know is this: we're in the presence of the one who does. And because he does, I'm going to worship him. Praise God. Praise God. So welcome to Spirit of Grace Church. We want to do something before we go into the word of the Lord. We want to encourage you to continue to pray for it's Natalie, right? Yeah. Natalie Grace, I think. Yes. James. James. I said James, didn't I? Third time. <laughs> Natalie, Janice, Paul, and Katie's new baby that the Lord would just touch her and give her strength. She's been having some struggles keeping her sugars up. She was just born uh, two days ago, I believe, and uh, that the Lord would just continue to strengthen her, keep his hand upon Katie. And uh, so we want to encourage you to do that. We're going to pray at this time over this handkerchief. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. I'm going to anoint this with oil, and I'm just going to have you raise your hand toward this cloth as, as we pray over it. This um, is found in Scripture, and this prayer cloth is going to go to a man by the name of Neil, and this is Renee and Tony Welsh's brother, um, who's facing a very, very important surgery in the morning. And we're praying for his physical being, but even more importantly than that, we're praying for his spiritual being, that God would minister to him and speak to him and uh, would restore to him the power of the word of God into his life. In the name of Jesus. And uh, Tony's going to be taking this to him. He's not here today because he's dealing with some of the issues that are going on around that. Tony's going to take this and give this to Neil this afternoon or this evening. They're going to pray over him, and he's going to take this with him tomorrow as he goes before this surgery. And uh, I believe that the angels of heaven 
We can't run about Jesus. So would you just raise your hands toward this handkerchief? We're going to we've anointed it with oil in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray over this handkerchief right now. Lord, I pray that when it reaches Neil, that he would sense the warmth of your presence like never before. Unleash the heavenly host. Lord, that your word in Hebrews says our angels sent forth to be ministering spirits. I pray, God, that your hand of mercy would be upon him, not only in the physical, natural world, but I'm asking you to reach into the core of who he is and into his spirit and begin to do a change. Speak to him in a way that he cannot deny it. Lord, let him hear your voice like he's never heard it before. Use his family, God, as a witness and a testimony to who you are and allow the power of the great physician to move into his body, into his soul, and into his spirit. Make him whole. I'm praying, God, not that you would just heal him, but I'm asking you to make him whole in spirit, soul, and body. In the name that is above every name, for at your name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are the Lord. I plead the blood of the Lamb in this situation right now by your word, by your power. In the name of Jesus, I declare it over him right now. I declare your name over this family. Give them peace. Bind them together with cords that cannot be broken. Let healing and forgiveness come. Lord Jesus, let reconciliation come. Let the peace that passes all understanding settle in. In the name that is above every name. I love you. I praise you. I adore you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Please keep kneeling in your prayers. Some of you ask me why, may ask why we pray over a handkerchief. It's found in scripture and the actual passage fails me right now. But when people couldn't get to Jesus, they would have, or to the apostle, they would anoint a handkerchief. And uh, I have seen this work actually not the handkerchief, it's the anointing and the prayers that go over it. This is just symbolic. I don't know where they got the hanky. I'm hoping it wasn't out of Tony's drawer. <laughs> but it's just a hanky. But the anointing that is on it through your prayers, this is symbolic of a desire to have Neil's body touched. And uh, so there's nothing magic about the hanky. But there is something powerful about the anointing. Yes. Praise God. And I'm thankful that we're able to call on the name of the Lord in the time of need. Praise God. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 and verse number 1. I'm reading from the King James Version. I don't know why I've gone back to that more in the last couple of weeks. I think maybe because I got a nice little Bible case from the Bible that's falling apart. I've had this study Bible forever, and uh, and the bindings have all come out, and the pages are kind of loose. And, but now I can carry it without worrying about it falling apart in my hands. So John chapter 13, starting at verse number 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. I want you to notice the phrase, all things, or had given all things into his hands. And with the help of the Lord today, I want to preach this message. Everything hung in the balance. Everything hung in the balance. Would you just bow your heads where you're at one more time? Jesus, I'm asking you, Lord, to fill me up and pour me out upon your people. Lord, let your word come alive in a dynamic way. Lord, use your messenger today to speak a word that would uh, increase our faith, that would encourage, that would lift up. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears and hearts to receive what your word is trying to tell us today. And Lord, by the time we leave here this afternoon, I'm asking you, God, to allow the great glory of the Lord to gather round about us and help us to step into a dimension of relationship with you that we have not done so as yet. We'll be careful to give you praise and glory and honor for you're the only one that's worthy in your sweet, precious name of Jesus. Amen, amen. There are so many scriptures in the word of the Lord that tend to, we would look at as pivotal passages of scripture. And I believe today that what we just read, these first three scriptures that seemingly are just kind of narrative in the life of Jesus, I believe that these three scriptures are a pivotal, if not the most pivotal scripture in all of history. And uh, because it is at this moment that everything from the beginning of time to the end of time hangs in the balance of eternity. There was a, uh, a message that my father preached that was, uh, and, and I'll just be honest with you, I got this thought from him. It's been a treasure chest for me to have his digital sermons and be able to pull them up from time to time. And and I uh, can't really follow his notes very well, but he gives me some good thoughts. And uh, But he made this statement in one of his notes. He said, these were 24 hours that reshaped the entire universe. From John chapter 13, verse number 1, until about John chapter 19, it encompasses about a 24-hour period. And that 24-hour period is the day that reshaped everything. It was the time where everything hung in the balance from before Christ to after Christ to where you and I sit today. It was this 24-hour period that dictated to us or for us what our lives could become. You see, from the beginning of time, there has been something that we've all dealt with, and that is called temptation. How many have ever been tempted? And if you didn't, you're lying to yourself. Everybody has been tempted. Uh, again, I was reading my dad's notes, and, and he made this statement. He said, I've tried 28 diets in the last 28 days, and I failed them all. We used to tease him because he started a diet every Monday morning. You see, there's things that we don't do very well at, that we trip over ourselves. And uh, what Jesus faced in the last 24 hours of his life on earth was more of temptation than you or I will ever deal with in a lifetime. And because everything about all of eternity 
the whole plan of God, the whole nature of why he came to this world, the reason why he was born in Bethlehem came down to this 24-hour time period. You see, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, we see where temptation starts. We see the serpent whispering into Eve's ear, and we don't know how often that took place. We just have the record of when she succumbed to that temptation. He may have come a couple different times, a few times. He may have just been harassing her for days. We don't know. All we know is that at some point in time, she stopped long enough to listen to the temptation of the serpent. And we see that Adam is standing there right with her and follows her right down the path of disobedience and commits the sin of eating from the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, even though they had all of the opportunity to eat any other fruit that was in the garden, but they chose this one because they thought that they would be like God. It was a temptation to see what it was like, to know all things, it was, and there was a temptation to be in control, and there was a temptation, you understand where I'm coming from, we've all got these temptations, it's our temptation to figure it out on our own, to make our own way, to become independent, it's one of the things that we as humans do backwards. The older we get in the natural, the more independent we try to become. But in the spiritual sense, the Bible says that we should become more immature the older we get. Because the more mature we get in the natural, the more understanding that we should have that we don't have any clue what we're doing in life. In fact, the Bible says it this way. Jesus says to the disciples, suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You see, the greatest conversion that I've, I've stated here before, but the greatest conversion is not from sinner to saint, it's from adult to child. It's from, it's from adult becoming to the place that every child comes to. We've got children scattered throughout this uh, building today. Can I just tell you that not one of them is worried about a mortgage payment? Not one of them is worried about a car payment. Not one of them is worried about where the next meal is coming from. Why? Because they're relying on an adult to supply their need. But somewhere in our natural tendency, we flip the switch somewhere as we grow up. And all of a sudden, we're trying to figure out and we start worrying about a mortgage payment. We start worrying about a car payment and putting food on the table and supplying the needs of the family. And God is saying, listen, if you keep doing that in the natural, that's okay. But in the spiritual, you've got to get back to what the little kids are doing and just rely on the Heavenly Father to take care of you. And so from that point on in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve decided to follow after their own desires and not after the precepts of God, history, uh, in, in, from that point on in history, men and women, we have been at the mercy of our fleshly appetites, and because of that, death rules over us. In fact, if you read passage by passage through Scripture, I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. But did you ever read the story of Lot and Abraham? Lot and Abraham. Lot and Abraham, they, had the, they come to this place where God had blessed them both so much that Lot said, the blessings are too much. We've got to separate. And so Abraham says, okay, you choose. You can either have the nice lush ground over here or you can have the dry desert over here. I'll take whichever one you don't choose. Now in the natural... It was no choice. 
If I'm going to grow a crop and I'm going to take care of cattle, I'm going to supply for my family, I better be going to the nice, lush uh, prairie land where I can support my family. I can grow a crop. I can feed my cattle. I can do all those things. And that's exactly what Lot did because Lot was listening and, and thinking through the natural realm because it was just so happened that Abraham didn't really care because he knew God was in control. And so Abraham went to the desert. He prospered over there in the wilderness and didn't have the greatest property. He didn't have the greatest land, but God used him and grew him. But, but Lot chose the plains that faced Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the Bible says that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Something was happening. He was tempted by the things of the city, by the plains where Sodom and Gomorrah was. There was something that was drawing his attention. Can I just tell you the day that he chose that property was not the day that he began to sin? The day he chose that property was not the day that he became somebody that was going to get wrapped up. He just naturally took that which was better than one other thing. And so in that choice, in that decision, the problem wasn't that he took that property. The problem was that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. That's, that, that, that phrase is not just saying he chose the land that was closer to Sodom than what Abraham, but it means that he directed his tent, everything focused on Sodom. And, and, and when he did that, he was then setting himself up for a mess. And you see, that's what we do. We weigh the pros and the cons in the natural world. Well, this job can give me $10 more an hour than this job. It must be the thing I do. And maybe it is, but where are you pitching your tent? Which direction are you facing? Have you identified where God wants you to be? Have you identified where God will bless you the most? You see, I believe that had Lot chosen that land and left his tent facing the promised land, the city that whose builder and maker was God, the, the area that Abraham was searching for, if he would have pitched his tent toward there, the property didn't matter. But he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And he came, became overcome by the temptation of Sodom. And pretty soon he was living in Sodom. And not only was he living in Sodom, the Bible said he sat in the gate, which meant he sat in a place of authority in Sodom until the angels had to come and get him out. But it's not just people like Lot. See, we, we, we look down our noses at Lot a little bit. What, 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 what were you thinking, Lot? But David, a man after God's own heart, he did the same thing. I don't know why David chose not to go to battle that day. I don't know why, because that was his normal place. He was known for his, his David and his mighty men. In fact, not only was he known by the people for his warrior skills, but he was recognized by God. It was part of the reason why David wasn't allowed to build the tavern near the temple of God was because there was blood on his hands. He was a warrior. He was a fighter. He was somebody that overcame armies. And, and for some reason, he decided to take a vacation and stay home from the battle. And it was the day that he stayed home from the battle that his temptation overcame him. It was the day that he stayed out of the fight. Can I just tell you, as hard as it gets right now to fight, as hard as it is to get in the battle, don't step back from the battle. 
well. Stay in the heat of it. Stay in prayer. Stay in fasting. Stay in Bible reading. Stay in the battle. Because in the battle, God will protect you. But when you take a break, when you sit back and relax and say, I just need to take a day off. It's in that moment that the temptation of the enemy will come your way. And in 2 Samuel 11, David succumbs to the temptation and he commits adultery and then he covers it up with murder until he's exposed by the prophet. Men and women throughout the ages, Alexander the Great, all of the Caesars of Rome, Napoleon, on and on and on we could go of people that were attracted to power, people that were attracted to wealth, people that were attracted to prestige, Whatever it is, even to this day, there are people that are living their life hungry and thirsty for fame and for, for recognition and, and all of the temptations that come along with that. And they step into that. You see, men and women have been driven by temptation in every society, in every age, and in every nation. Nobody is exempt from it. Nobody can, can step away from it. The temptation of the world is in front of each and every one of us. But here's what I have come to declare to you today. If you wrap up every temptation throughout history that every person faced, it would not come close to what Jesus was experiencing in the last 24 hours of his life. The Bible says in John 13, it said, all things were put into his hands. Now listen, I don't believe that the Bible was written accidentally. I believe there was a reason why the word says that all things were put into his hands and not into his heart. Or not into his mind or not upon his shoulders it was put into his hands and notice that it said all things were put into his hands all things everything all means all all authority all power all wealth all sin all temptation, all reckoning, all shame, all grief, all joy, it was all put into his hands. He held it all. And the reason why I don't think the thing that was written accidentally that it was put into his hands is because of this. In somebody's hands, you have a choice whether to hold it or not. Amen. You see, it could have said it was in his heart, but the Bible says this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, no man knows the heart except for the Lord. You see, it can get in the heart and we don't even know it's there, but if it's in your hands, you're either going to grab a hold of it or you're going to let it go. You're going to either embrace it or you're going to let it go. You have a choice. Jesus had a choice in that moment of John chapter 13 and verse 3 when all things were put in his hands. He had the choice of either I'm going to hold on to it or I'm going to let it go. I'm going to embrace it or I'm going to let it go. And in that moment of time, Jesus has everything hanging in the balance. What is he going to do? Is he going to embrace it or is he going to let it go? I believe he had a choice. Because and the reason why I believe he had a choice is because two chapters later, he, he prays this. Not my will, but thy will be done. 
He had a choice. It is his. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was all put into my hands, can I tell you what I would do? And if you're honest with yourself, you'd do the same thing. You'd pick and choose what you wanted to hold. Authority? Oh, yeah, I'll take a hold of that. That way, when I say submit at home, I don't get laughed at. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke between my wife and I. All authority, all power to speak everything into existence, to speak to the dishes to be clean, to speak to the laundry to be folded, to speak to the lawn to be mowed. And I love that. Joy, I'd love to hold on to that. But the Bible doesn't distinguish what he chose. It said all things. Can I tell you what else he chose to embrace? Your sin. Your hatred. Your wrath. Your temptation. That's why I said what he faced in the last 24 hours. All of us wrapped up together in history. It was all in his hand. From Adam and Eve to the last person that sins before judgment was all in his hands. The Bible even goes so far to say this. He became sin for us. It also says he became a curse for us. I don't know what, I mean, you've got to grab. We like to say he became sin and, and, and that's all in the abstract. You know what that means? That means in that 24 hour, he embraced being a murderer. Not that he was one, but he embraced you. And you may say, well, I've never killed anybody. Have you ever gossiped? You killed the reputation. He took every theft upon him. Every little white lie that every human has ever said since the beginning of time till now, he embraced. Can I tell you what that? I don't know if I was you, and, or if I was him, and I was in that position, I'd say, sure, I'll take it, but I'm going to use my power and authority to handle it so that I don't have to deal with it. Do you want to know what Jesus did? We didn't read it, but in verse number four, he grabbed a towel. Got down on his hands and knees. Took a water bucket. Began to wash dirty feet of dirty men. Sinful man. And he humbled himself according to Philippians and became obedient even to the death of the cross. 24 hours. What was Jesus going to choose? How was he going to respond to all the sin that he felt? All the weight. And, and notice it wasn't, see, our sin, how many have ever just felt the weight of your sin? The shame of, and, and the guilt of all that you've done, all the times we've messed up, all the times we've lied, all the times that we've done wrong, all the times we haven't done what we know we're supposed to do, all of those things, and that sin gets heavier. And we crawl to a cross. We say, God, forgive me. Just in America, there's about 300 million people 
carrying all kinds of weight, standing at a cross. And Jesus says, I'll take that in my hands in John 13, 3. I'll bench press that for a while. I'll feel the weight of that for a while. I'll feel the heaviness. I'll feel your guilt. I'll feel your shame. Listen, he's walked into this room. And because of Calvary and the decision that was made in John chapter 13, when everything hung in the balance, he reached all the way into 2020, and he said, I will handle your guilt for you. I will handle the weight of your sin. All things have been put into my hands, and I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to take it. If you read between chapters 13 and 19, he begins to comfort his disciples. He's facing a death that no man should ever taste of. He is handling the sin and the temptations all wrapped up in one that no human being should have to go through. And what does he do? He washes their feet and he begins to comfort them. In John 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my house there are many men. I go to prepare a place for you. What does he do? He goes on, he says, love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have loved one for another. He goes on and he says, I've got to go away at the end of John 14. I've got to go away so that the comforter can come. Amen. He's thinking about others. In the midst, he has looked at his disciples. Can I just tell you? He has looked at Judas Iscariot sitting in the room with him already knowing that he betrayed him, already knowing that the devil had taken over control of Judas Iscariot, and he looks at him at the same time. And he says, Judas, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. And a couple hours later, when Judas returns in the garden, he says, my friend, why have you come? What was he saying? He's saying, Judas, I took your betrayal, and I embraced it for you. Judas, I'm taking your rejection to the cross. Judas, I'm taking that which you got frustrated with. And in the succumbing to the temptation, I'm taking it to the cross with me. Tim, the hatred that you had, I'm taking that to the cross. To each one of us, he's reached into our lives and all the junk that's there. He's saying, I took it in my hands in John 13. And now I'm turning around and saying, it's so I can comfort you. Those of us who really don't deserve to be comforted. Those of us that really, the decisions that we've made in life and the things that we've done and the things that we've thought. But if you read John chapter 17, he begins to pray for us. Now, I don't know about you, but can I tell you what my prayer would be at that point in time after all things have been given into my hands? My prayer would be, God, blast them off the face of the earth. <laughs> they have 
rejected me. They have used my name in vain. They have broken every commandment that I've ever given them. They have violated every law that I've ever laid down. They have treated me poorly. They have not received me. They have treated others poorly. They have enslaved people. They have addicted people. They've done, done. The longer this goes on, God, just wipe them out. That's what my prayer would have been. So it's a good thing I wasn't Jesus. Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, glorify them like I glorified you. Transform them into the people that you designed them to be. I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying, I want them to be made righteous and pure and holy. I'm praying, God, that you don't hold account to their sins, but put their sins in my hands and let me feel the weight of it. And in John chapter 18, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on his face. The pressure is so heavy that he is, he is sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. The pressure was so intense. And at the, still at the same time, he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And when he prayed that prayer, he knew what he was getting ready to face. He knew that the soldiers were going to punch him in the face. He knew that he was going to be spit in the face and his beard was going to be ripped out of his face. He knew what the whip would feel like going across his back. Not just a leather belt, but a cat of nine tails that had probably chips of bone and rock in it, tore his flesh apart. I don't mean to be gross or disgusting, but that's what Jesus went through so that you and I could be healed. For the Bible says by his stripes, we are healed. It was in that moment when everything hung in the balance that Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll take it on myself. I know what's getting ready to happen. The very people that I invested all my three and a half years of ministry in, they're going to cower in a corner. Some of them are going to deny me. Some of them are going to run away. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to have a crown of thorns put onto my brow. And the Bible says that they beat it with a reed right into the core of his brow. I understand what, I, I don't like just getting pricked by a thorn, let alone having it now I put into my brow. I, I don't know the excruciating pain that he must have felt. But he understood everything hung in the balance. As he was experiencing that, I've got to believe that he was looking to September 20th, 2020. At 10110 Woodcrest Drive, Northwest in Coon Rapids, and he was looking at you. Now, I may just be a wimp, but I have found through life that the anticipation of pain is often as bad, if not worse, than the pain itself. For instance, this isn't even painful, but this is just the way I think. I don't like MRIs. In fact, I dread them. I had to have one one time, never did get around to it, because I got there and I was good. They laid me down on my back and I was laying still and I was good. I was getting ready to go into the little tube. Hadn't totally freaked out yet until they took the mask and they put the mask over and they drilled the mask into the thing. I said, like, nope, this ain't happening. 
I freaked out. I was shaking. They had to take the mask off. I had to call my wife to come back and get me because I just told you, because the anticipation of just having an MRI totally freaked me out. Can you imagine what Jesus felt in John 18 when he knew what was getting ready to happen to him? The anticipation of the pain. The anticipation of the first time the whip took a, uh, went on his back. The first time the crown of thorns went into his brow. The first time he got punched by a guard. The first time he had his beard plucked from his face. And to know that he didn't have to do it. But he also knew that everything hung in the balance. I don't know about you, but in chapter 19, when he stands before the coward Pilate, Herod, I don't know about you, but I probably would have gone through with calling the legions of angels to take care of him. Can you imagine standing there with his hands on a whipping post, knowing that that which he created was getting ready to feed him? That which he had all power and authority over was getting ready to crucify him. And when he laid down on the wood and they took out the spikes to go into his hands and his feet and every swing of the hammer was done by somebody that he had total authority over and power over. 24 hours that changed the course of mankind. Everything hung in the balance. And the reason that he did it was so that you and I could experience what we have experienced in this house today. Amen. We live in a day and age where temptation to just sit back and relax, to cower in a corner, to hide out, to not deal with the circumstances of life. We are living in a day and age but can I just tell you that if Jesus took that 24 hours when everything was given into his hands and he had a choice to embrace my sin or to reject my sin and he embraced it, I owe it to him to live for him today. I owe it to him to love him today. I owe it to him to serve him today. I owe it to him to become what he wants me to become because he's done so much for me. I want you to close your eyes with me. And I want you to picture a hillside. The hill looks like a skull. The name of that hill is Golgotha. The Greek term is Calvary. I want you to imagine the shouting of voices in the mob of a crowd, crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Hear the anger in their voices. Hear the hatred in their terms. I want you to picture no friends nearby, but all alone. A man that you don't even recognize 
because his face has been so brutalized and his back has been so torn apart and he's carrying a heavy piece of wood. And he begins his journey down the Via Dolorosa. Crowds are mocking him and throwing things at him. The voices get louder and louder and louder. Strength is emptying from his body. He falls over on the street and drops the piece of wood. He can't hardly continue on. And so an onlooker who happens to be there that day is taken by the guards, a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene. Says, you take up his cross. The next part of the journey, Simon carries the cross of Christ as Christ crawls up to this hill of Golgotha. His flesh is exposed to the elements. He has been beaten. He has been scourged. He's got a crown of thorns on his head that has made his face and his brow all bloody. He hasn't had anything to eat or to drink. He has carried all the way up to that hill, and then he is thrown down on that crossbar. And as they begin to put the nails into his hands, you can hear the utter pain as the spike goes through his flesh on each hand and then into his feet. And then you can see as he goes up on the, the cross and it drops down into the hole, the, the absolute pain that had to course through his body as every nail that was in his hands and his feet coursed through his body and the rough timber on his open back began to poke into his flesh and the crown that was on his head began to bounce against the back of the cross that was behind him. Your eternity was hanging in the balance that day. Your freedom was hanging in the balance that day. Your opportunity to become everything that God wants you to become was hanging in the balance that day. And through agonized pain, through the torture, a dry throat, you hear the words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And that forgiveness has been echoing through eternity. It reached back to Adam and Eve when they committed the original sin. And it's reaching forward to the last person that commits a sin. Father, forgive them. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was he saying when he said that? He's saying all the things that he embraced in John 13, the sin, the cursing, the, the, the hatred, the wrath, all of the stuff that you and I have done and committed, he had embraced that and that sin had separated him from the power of Almighty God and he felt abandoned in that moment because of the sin that he was becoming.
your sin was finished. And while all of eternity hung in the balance, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, the scales began to shift. There was a shaking that was taking place in the natural world. The Bible says the sun became dark. The earth began to shake. Listen, what was happening? Can I tell you what was happening? And you can open your eyes. Here's what was happening. The scales were adjusting. You see, for all the Old Testament, the law was weighing us down. The law had a uh, condemnation of our sin, of was death and separation from God. But that last 24 hours was Jesus stepping on the scale and balancing it out. And not only was Jesus balancing it out, he was getting ready to flip them. So now you and I have the opportunity to find the throne room of grace. The veil was rent and tanked from top to bottom so that you and I have the opportunity today to dwell in his presence. We hung in the balance those 24 hours and my Jesus was victorious. And the scales have been flipped. So the challenge for you today is simply this. What are you holding on to that hasn't been placed in Jesus' hands yet? Because the Bible says this, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who love God. Have you been condemning yourself? Put it into the hands that have already won the battle. Has your sin messed you up? Jesus already took it and hung it on a tree. So that you could be free. So why hold on to it? I invite you to stand. I don't know why the Lord had me bring this message, but it's for somebody today. It's not even for necessarily somebody that's new, somebody that's never been a part of the kingdom of God. This could be for somebody you have been living your life as a quote unquote Christian. As a believer, and, and I'm not I'm not trying to put you down today, but you've been holding on to some thoughts in your brain, in your spirit, because you didn't think that Jesus could really take that away from you. Amen. Because you had done so I, I've been reading a book, several books actually. It's a volume of books, it's a novel, it's made up, but it talks about somebody that has um, done some things in his life that he's not proud of and, and it's plagued him and he's trying to make up for it. He's doing step nine, I think it is, making amends. He's trying to do that and live his life to do that and, and to try to fix it. Um, but in this book, the author lets us know that in this man's mind, he can never do enough to make up for what he has already done. Can I tell you that that's a true statement? You can never do enough to make up for what you've already done. But he can. And not only can he, he did in the 24 hours where everything hung in the balance.
O grave, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? We serve a risen Savior. Amen. That when everything hung in the balance, he didn't choose himself. He chose you. Everything hung in the balance. He chose Tim Sanders. When everything hung in the balance, he saw Dave Johnson. When all of eternity hung in the balance, he saw Dwayne West. He was looking at you when he said, Not my will, but thy will be done. He loves you so much that when he had to make the choice, he chose you and he chose me. I don't know what that does to the inside of you, but I can't walk away today discouraged because Jesus chose me. Amen. There's something in me that Jesus wanted. And there's something in you, though it may be clouded over in your mind and you think there's nothing that you have to offer him, that your life has just been miserable, that you've been abused, that you've done this, you've done that, maybe you have been the abuser, I don't, it doesn't matter what you are. Jesus said, I see you, I see what's really in you, I know who you really are designed to be, and I have chosen to take all that junk and I've embraced it and taken it to Calvary. So stop dwelling in the junk and get into the joy. In Jesus' name. With every eye closed, this whole sanctuary has become an altar area. If you have come today, you may even just be a guest, and you may think that we're just total freaks. That's okay, I'll be a freak for Jesus. But through this week, you've been dealing with some of your decisions. And you've looked in the mirror and you haven't liked what you've seen. You've doubted whether or not you're good enough to really live life. With your eyes closed, would you just raise your hand all across this congregation? From this day forward, I declare to you, when you look in the mirror, I am praying and declaring that you will see what Jesus sees and not what you see. Lord, by the authority of your word, I speak your vision into their vision. Every hand that was raised, I'm asking you, God, to stop letting them see them and start seeing how you see them. I'm asking you, God, right now to perform a miracle of miracles. And let the spirit of Calvary rise up in each person in this house. By the authority of your word and the power of your decision to put everything in your hands and not give up your will for us, to give up your options for us, to become obedient unto death for us. I'm asking you, God, to help each person begin to see themselves 
the way you see them. What took you to the cross was the love that you had for us. It was a vision of who you saw in us. And I'm asking you, God, to give us that same vision. To see us through the eyes of your love and the eyes of your mercy. In the name of Jesus.